Good morning and welcome, especially if you are visiting with us this uh, warm July morning. We're glad that you're here. Um, I met a visitor a moment ago who uh, was looking at the stage set and said, I came and saw Pinkalicious. And so they, they know already kind of the, the context in which we do church here. And, and I, I was telling someone else earlier this morning that I forget, I'm looking out at you, I see you, and I don't, I forget to see the, the pink lacy kind of doll-like background behind me, and I forget that uh, you see me in a very different light than I see myself. <laughs> and that's just what we have here at the theater. So just so you know, in a couple of weeks, I think they're going to strike this stage. They'll probably repaint the stage black, and it'll just be plain straight black for the month of August. But in September, Dr. Seuss is coming. So, I, I mean, just I'll leave that to your imagination, what that might bring. And we will see in September. Will you take a look with me at Psalm 66 this morning? Psalm 66 is on page 6 of your bulletin. And I'm calling this psalm, for our purposes this morning, a psalm of thanksgiving. And I think that it is that. There are certainly elements of thanksgiving to it. But you'll notice as we read it that the words thanks or thanksgiving don't actually show up in this psalm. It really kind of has the, at least on the surface, more a a notion of a psalm of praise. And it's a good example of the fact that you can't always distinguish clearly among the types of psalms. Some of them straddle different types. Some of them just don't really fall cleanly into one type or another. And maybe that's kind of the case here, although it's certainly praise and thanksgiving. But gratitude or thanksgiving is an inevitable result of gospel grace. It it just is. And with a veil of praise in this psalm, there is, I think, an important lesson for us about gospel gratitude. So you young Christians, you, you little ones, as you listen, as I read this psalm, to you, to, the, to you, this might be a show-and-tell psalm. I expect that some of you young kids have done show-and-tell at school. You've taken something to school that was important to you, that you wanted to show to your friends and tell them about. The psalmist is doing that here. He's showing and telling um, as we read this. See if you can tell what it is that's so important to him that he's brought to show and tell. This is Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. 
That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us again today. As we always ask, it seems repetitive almost, but so necessary, because if you don't move with your spirit, among us and open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, open our very souls to your life-giving word, then we will not receive that life. But we pray that we would, Father. We pray that you would grant that that would be so, that you would work that miracle among us and in us this morning so that we might walk away from this gathering this morning giving to you thanks in our hearts and with our mouths and with our very lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know a man in Georgia, his name is Eric, who told the story just recently of his own Good Samaritan deed that he did. It was late one evening and he was driving home in his town and the sun had just set and a a heavy thunderstorm broke in his town and the rain began to pour down in sheets lightning flashing and such and as he was driving along the road he saw up ahead of him a car that had pulled over with its hazard lights on I suppose and as he approached it he could see in the rain up ahead evidently the driver who was walking casually in the rain uh, in the direction that he was driving and carrying a gas can in his hand he had apparently run out of gas and so Eric pulled over and offered the guy, the young man, a ride, and he accepted. He got in the car. And Eric drove him up the road to the gas station, just about a quarter mile up the road. And Eric waited there for him to fill his gas can with gas, and and then he offered to take him back to his car. And the young man said, No, you know, it's okay. My brother is going to come here soon. He's going to meet me in case I need some more help. I'll be fine. I'm already wet. I'll just walk back to my car. But, he said, thanks for your help, and here's a little something for your trouble. And he tossed Eric something, which Eric just instinctively caught in his hand. And as the guy was sauntering casually off into the darkness of the rain that night, Eric looked in his hand to see what it was that he had. And the expression of gratitude that this young guy had given to him was a a small plastic bag, which Eric immediately recognized inside of it, the finely shredded green leaves of marijuana. Eric's a lawyer. And he knew immediately what he had in his hands, and, and he realized, you know, of course, this is not my type of Thanksgiving to receive. And so he smiled, shook his head, and he opened it and dumped it into the trash can there at the gas station and got back in his car and drove home. Sometimes the response to a good deed falls far short 
of the deed itself, doesn't it? Even if the one who's expressing that gratitude means well, which surely the young guy did, his expression of gratitude still fell so far short because of what it was. Normally, the measure of one's gratitude should correspond to the significance of what has been done for them. But the nature of the gospel is such that should you ever fully grasp the significance of what God has done for you, you could never give thanks enough. You never could. And so the the lesson in mixing praise with thanksgiving in this psalm here is this, I think. Gospel gratitude arises from a context that is much, much larger than your personal concerns. That's the nature of what this psalm expresses. And it's those things of God that are worthy of our praise which actually demand our thanksgiving in the end. The writer is responding with this thanksgiving praise to God because of what God has done apparently, and he wants to show it to anyone who's willing to look. He wants to tell of it to anyone who's willing to listen to him. And even more, I think he wants to exhort believers to respond to God's grace by giving their very lives in gratitude. Just like a magnifying glass, in a sense, narrows the sunlight and takes it from the the broad scheme of the sun down through its glass and then focuses it onto one particular hot spot on the concrete, this psalmist does a similar thing. He starts with a broad sweep of gratitude and narrows it down to focus eventually on his own heart. He he goes from the earth to a smaller group of people and finally to himself because it's easy to see that the earth gives thanks to God. Shout for joy to God, he says. All the earth, sing the glory of his name. Many, as they read these psalms, in this particular set of psalms, number 65 through 68, suggest that this is actually a grouping of psalms. Even though they might not have been written all together, they they fit together thematically, and so they're clustered together for that reason. And you can feel the flow of that theme as you read the end of Psalm 65, before it. You don't have it there in your bulletin, but the end of Psalm 65 personifies the earth. And it does that to show its thanksgiving praise to God. It says this, the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. And then comes Psalm 66. So, shout for joy to God, all the earth. And so the psalmist continues the the thoughts of the previous psalm. It's not just an invitation to the people of the earth to thank their creator. It's actually a reminder to us that the earth is already doing that. Verse 3, O earth, say to God... How awesome are your deeds. How amazing is the earth. The the psalmist is calling the earth to to sing praise to God and give him thanks. And 
the Psalter is filled with this idea. You know, the, the psalmist in other places says, to the Lord you've stretched out the heavens like a tent, or the clouds are your chariot, or the, the cedars rise up and praise you. The Psalms are full of these kinds of phrases. In other words, all of the earth, all of creation gives thanks to God for his mighty works of, of his power and his design, even if we don't actually see it ourselves to take part in it. Earlier in the summer, I took our boys on a, an overnight, one-night camping trip down to Enchanted Rock. Probably, probably many of you have been to Enchanted Rock. It's just outside of Austin to the west, out in the hill country there, a, an, an amazing place to go and camp out for a night or two. And it was a perfect night for camping out. The sky was totally clear, and you could see countless stars in the sky. It was a marvel to see. And not only that, you could see Jupiter and Saturn and Mars with the naked eye. They were just as clear as they could be. And we enjoyed seeing that. But the next morning, we we got up and hiked around the rock and then finally made our way to the trail that would take us up to the top of the enchanted rock, this enormous granite dome, and reading the information um, uh, poster there at the beginning of the trail, it explained that this dome of granite that you see that's so enormous, it's only the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, the tip of the granite berg, to be literal, because geologists have, in their studies, figured out that underneath that granite dome and stretching for miles around is an enormous unspeakably huge granite rock lying under the earth, displaying the power and the glory, the magnificent strength of God, and no man or woman can even see it because the creation declares God's praise. It, it constantly does that. Now, just a little word about that to you and to me too. Don't ever miss the opportunity to give praise to God by following creation's lead, giving thanksgiving praise to God for his powerful design of his creative hand. You have all kinds of opportunities to do that. Don't ever miss that opportunity. It's deepening for your soul. Because the earth's creation naturally and constantly gives God thanks. But the earth's people do not even though their nature is inclined to do it. Lou Schwartzberg is a nature photographer, a videographer, actually, and his specialty is time-lapse photography of natural settings. And in a presentation that he gave about that, he explained that his goal is to give you a short video version of nature that will cause you to say three words. Oh, my God. God. And he explains those words. He, he, he said, I want you to say, oh, because that's an expression of the fact that something has struck your imagination to the core and has arrested your attention so much so that nothing else matters and all you want to know is, what is this thing I'm seeing? The word my, he suggests, is that it has not just gathered your attention, but it struck a chord in your soul. It's It's attached itself to you because you recognize that you need this thing. And the word God, he explains, is the personal journey that we all want to be on. 
to be inspired to feel like we're connected to a universe that celebrates life. He is so close. So close, because his, his soul longs to make that connection, and he, he very much wants to give thanks to God, but he, he doesn't. He doesn't see it. His eyes just don't quite see the reality of God's presence, that God's not just a personal journey, but he is the creator God, that this man, this videographer, and all of us actually are connected to this universe in which God is giving life. And so the psalmist invites the earth's people to show and tell. In verse 5, what does he say? Come and see what God has done. And what has God done? I mean, at this point, you expect some amazing natural miracle. You expect for the psalmist to point out some remarkable element of the creation that will astonish your imagination. But that's not what he does. Where does he go here? What are his awesome deeds that he calls attention to? It's the exodus. It's the deliverance of God's people to the promised land. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot, and there did we rejoice in him who rules forever. He draws our attention to the exodus and the deliverance of God's people. If you want to be connected to a universe that celebrates life, then see what the creator of that universe has already done. He has delivered the children of man, that is, all men. He's offered their deliverance from death, from their bondage to slavery in Egypt. Now, the Exodus, we have to realize in the Psalms and in much of the the Scripture, plays a role poetically. It it, it plays, not just historically, but poetically, it plays a role such that it often is a part representing the whole. The Exodus is, in a sense, the cross of the Old Testament. It's the, the, the pinnacle point of God's deliverance of His people, foreshadowing the coming of the cross. It is God's delivering man from the death of slavery. Now you might say, well, I'm not a slave. And we did away with that in this country, at least years ago, I'm a modern American and I have the freedom to choose the shape of my life. But think again about that for a moment. Because when the heat is on, so to speak, when the, when the pressures of life that, that inevitably bear down on you from different directions and at different points in your week, in the months, in the years of your life, when the heat is on, when you are not in control, What do you turn to for relief? Do you turn to anxiety? Do you turn to anger? Do you turn to food and drink? Do you turn even to political banter so that you can blame other people for the world's problems? Where do you turn? Where where do you go for relief? Where do you find refuge? Because You do live for something that controls you. You do. You must. Because you're a human being, inevitably that's the case. And if that thing is not God's deliverance from death, then it is the slavery of death itself. So if the earth's people are to give thanks to God, then 
they have to see God's people giving thanks to God. Beginning in verse 8, he gives us more show and tell even. And, and at this point, he wants to show us and to tell us how God has cared for his people throughout the ages. His people being the Israelites in the psalmist's context more immediately. But in the broader picture, it's all of the church, capital C, all of God's people throughout the ages that God has cared for. And what does he say? He says, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. See, he's talking about God's people there, God's people who have trusted in him throughout the ages and whom God has given life. And then he explains why we should bless God, why we should thank God in verse 10. He says, because for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. What's he talking about? Because this doesn't make sense in the, just the, the common thinking of our world, does it? What's he talking about here? Well, surely he's talking about the years of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. He's talking about the the season of their lives that happened in between their deliverance from slavery and their arrival at the promised land, at their destination. It's a season that was filled with trials, a season that was filled with temptations and complaints and troubles. Again, it's, it's a poetic part for the whole sort of picture here. That wandering season of 40 years in the wilderness was a dramatic picture of our own sanctification. And it's very troubling, isn't it? So why should God's people give thanks to God for such troubling things? Well, this, I think, takes us back to that lesson about thanksgiving being mixed with praise. Remember what it was. Gospel gratitude arises out of a context that is much, much, much larger than your own personal concerns. In other words, if you've arrived at gratitude because of the gospel, it's not because you've gotten what you wanted. It's because God has given you what you needed. Now, we often confuse thanksgiving and praise. They're kind of confusing realities in Scripture for us, aren't they? And even in our own lives, it's hard to sort of figure out a distinction between them, because we often think of them like the consumers that we are. And so we think of them in terms of, well, God, I'll praise you after you do something to earn my thanksgiving. We wouldn't typically say that, but in our hearts, that's kind of the way we think. God, I'll give you praise after you do something for me that earns my thanksgiving, something for which I should give you thanks. something that you give me, something that you do for me, some status that you accomplish for me or open the door to me, then I'll give you thanks and I'll give you praise. But that's not gospel gratitude. That's actually closer to self-serving greed. Oh, You may and, and definitely should give thanks to God because of some answered prayer, but if you've not seen the larger context, then 
your thanksgiving is really no better than a bag of weed on a rainy night. Gospel gratitude does not come because you've gotten what you wanted. It comes because God's given what you needed. And what you need is part of a a context that's much, much larger than your personal concerns. Because you live in a world that's broken, don't you? I mean, we live in a world that's, that's so thoroughly broken, you can't read the newspaper headlines without being convinced of it. Every day, it's relentless, isn't it? You live in a world that's broken. You live among people who are broken. That's easy to see, isn't it? And you live with a body and a life inside that body that itself is broken. Sometimes that's harder to see. But God's redemptive work is about setting all of that straight through His sanctifying love for His people. And often that sanctifying love brings difficult things to achieve its purpose. It brings testing and trials to refine us like silver, he says. It brings to us tangled nets and crushing burdens to show us our weakness. You know, we have as Christians often a kind of a funny habit that we ought to work against and lean against a little bit more than we do. And that is that whenever hard things arise in our lives and difficulty comes to us, things unexpected or even anticipated, sometimes we see it coming from a long way off. Whenever hard things come to us, we often will blame it on the devil, don't we? And we so often will say, wow, Satan is really at work. Look at all the things he's messing up among us and all the trouble he's bringing to us. Well, he does his share. But more times than you may think, it's God who's doing it. God's the one who's bringing these things, who's leading you into the tangled nets and putting the crushing burdens on your back because God wants to refine you and make you new. And if the earth's people are to give thanks to God, then they have to see God's people giving thanks to God out of gospel gratitude. So bless our God. Give thanks to our God because He's tested us, because He's tried us, because He's put us through disciplinary difficulties so that we might arrive in this place of abundance, the psalmist says. And what is that place? Well, again, it's, it's the part for the whole, the, the place of abundance. The psalmist is surely thinking of the promised land where God's people arrived after their 40 years of wandering, the land of milk and honey, so to speak. And he is surely thinking of that tangibly, but in the bigger picture, it's a part for the whole. What is the whole? It's God's redemption of us. It's the forgiveness and the peace and the hope, all the gospel grace that comes along to us, along with being in Christ. Well, now the magnifying glass is narrowed and the, the beam of sunlight is, is beginning to shine into one intense spot of thanksgiving because the psalmist even can say, I give thanks to God. Verse 13, he starts to say that, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. In the very next verse, he actually indicates that he had been in trouble. And we don't know, of course, exactly what that trouble was, what his situation was that uh, um, brought that about. But, but it is true that this is a mark of a psalm of thanksgiving, that, that someone has been in trouble and now God has delivered them and they're giving him thanks for it. And the writer realizes, I think, that his trouble is, 
just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Again, the tip of the granite berg. It's all a part of a bigger context. It's, it's all a part of a bigger picture, he realizes, that his troubles are great, but they're connected to something much, much larger than him. They're connected to the vastness of the broken creation that God is sovereignly and patiently working to restore. And so the writer offers gospel gratitude. How does he do that? With burnt offerings. That's what he says. I'm going I'm to offer my burnt offerings to you in your house, O God. Now this, of course, is, is a contextual sort of thing. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us in our context. We don't offer burnt offerings too often in our backyards, I imagine. Although some of you who don't know how to grill maybe do that more often than you'd like. But if you go back to Leviticus chapter 1, you can read all about the, the offerings that God outlined for his people and the way that they were to approach him in his holiness. And among those various offerings that God outlines for us there in Leviticus, that old book, the most comprehensive one is the burnt offering. Some have called it a holocaust offering because the word means hollow, whole, and cost, burned. A whole burnt offering. Now the priests regularly did this for the whole of Israel. They, they did this a couple of times a day. They'd bring an animal into the, the temple and, and, and kill it. And they would burn it. The entire thing, they would burn the entire thing in devotion to God. And Individuals could also do this as, as an expression of special devotion to the Lord, and individuals did, in fact, do this. And that seems to be what this psalmist is after doing here and suggesting that he will do. And the animal in such a burnt offering represents the one who's offering it. The animal is taking the place of the one who's offering it. And it's a response to what God has done. And it is an expression of saying, Lord, because of what you've done, I'm going to give to you all of me. There's going to be nothing left. Every part of me is yours. And there was allowance for doves and pigeons to be offered as burnt offerings for those who were poor and couldn't afford any more than a dove or a pigeon. The more middle class folks would offer a sheep or a goat because that's what they could afford. And the wealthy people would offer a bull, because that was the most expensive thing available for them to offer there in the temple. And the psalmist goes overboard, doesn't he, in his suggestion of his own offering. He's going to bring rams and bulls and goats, multiple ones of all of them, it seems, because he's, he's so indebted in gratitude to God and all that he's done. He's going to give everything he has in its entirety to the Lord. Because if you've arrived at gospel gratitude, then you're willing to give your very self, the whole of you, to God. Now, if you're not a Christian, then I want to say a word to you for a moment here. Because you should see at this point some problems here, some things that for you might cause sort of a speed bump or a, or a, a, a tripping wire that that you want to step over and figure out, well, I don't know that I like these things, and what is this all about here? One of those problems maybe is animal sacrifice. Now, Christians don't do this anymore, and those maybe who do shouldn't. 
It's not a part of our, of our act anymore. It's, you might think it's, it's such an ancient and out-of-touch thing. It's out-of-touch with our culture. It makes no sense. And it's cruel. Who would sacrifice animals? What an awful thing. Well, sure. But in ancient times, things were very different than they are now. And I think one thing we need to realize is that God is the ideal and perfect contextualizer. He knows exactly how to reach into a culture and a place and connect with them because he made them. And he knows exactly what to do to draw them to himself. These animal lives symbolized our own lives. They symbolized the lives of the one giving the sacrifice. And in doing so, it made atonement for their sin. The grace in it is that it does not require our death. It didn't require the death of the one offering. It required the death of the animal itself. But then the other problem is maybe, why death? Why does God require death? And that, I'm sure, will just stir up all kinds of other questions for you, which I can't possibly begin to answer this morning. But to help you think about it a little bit, why death? The point, I think, here is is a simple one. Because you can't just forgive. No one can just simply forgive and forget because forgiveness requires pain. It always extracts pain from you. If you forgive someone who has offended or harmed you in some way, whether they are repentant for it or not, either way, if you forgive it, then you're the one who's absorbing the pain, aren't you? Because you're agreeing to let it pass and to reconcile with them, even though you can't go back in history and undo the pain that was done. It requires pain to forgive. It always involves suffering. And what God requires here may seem barbaric, but it's actually amazingly gracious because it's not our blood that's shed. Ultimately, it's His Ultimately, all these these sacrifices simply look forward to Jesus himself. Ultimately, it's God's blood that gets shed because of his steadfast love for us. And you see that here in this psalm, I think, maybe at a distance in the last verses of it. Verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. We've got show and tell again. What has God done for his soul? Well, through the testing and the trials of sanctification, as we already saw, God has loved his soul so much that he's been refining it and making it new. He's been restoring it. He's been redeeming it. And through it all, the psalmist arrives at this perfect syllogism for you logicians out there in verse 18. Did did some of you notice this in verse 18? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Okay, so for you logicians out there, this is a perfect syllogism. You have premise one and premise two, don't you? And they fit together perfectly. And they lead to a conclusion, don't they? I mean, a logical person is going to lead to a conclusion. And and what's it going to be? If if the the writer says, if I'd cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But 
truly God has listened. He's attended to the voice of my prayer. Therefore, what? Obviously, I have not cherished iniquity in my heart. So I'm free and clear. But is that what he does? It's not what he does. It's not what he does at all, is it? Interesting. I don't think that he assumes that conclusion either because this psalmist, as we've already seen, he knows his heart. He wouldn't be offering burnt offerings if he didn't realize that there was more to the depth of sin in his heart than he could even begin to imagine. He knows what's there. And he knows that God should, in fact, not have listened to his prayer. But he did. But he did because, you know what? Even in the Old Testament, you see the grace of God. It abounds. Even in the Old Testament, God did listen to his prayer, and so we get the illogical conclusion of grace. And grace is illogical. So you have to get over that speed bump, don't you? We get the illogical conclusion of grace. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Gospel gratitude always arises from a context that is much, much, much larger than your own personal concerns. It arises out of the nature of God himself. He is righteous. He is just. He is perfect. And so he is deserving of our praise. And he is patient. He's generous. And he's gracious. So he's deserving of our gratitude. He knows just how to reach you where you are, and that is what he has done. So may we together give praise to God in everything with grateful hearts, offering thanksgiving to him for all that he has done and all that he will do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for all that you've done. And we pray that you, O Lord, would enliven our hearts more and more to realize that that all that you have done for us is profound and infinite beyond our imagination. And draw our hearts, we pray, O Lord, to your grace to respond by giving to you our whole selves. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.